I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Laura Briggs. Professor Briggs is an author and a historian, and she was actually the very first guest on The Electorate when I launched the podcast back in 2017. And in 2017, she joined me to discuss her book titled How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. And that's still one of my favorite books on reproductive justice and policy. On this episode, Dr. Briggs joins me again to discuss her latest book titled Taking Children, A History of American Terror. Now, this episode was recorded shortly after the book's release and before the presidential election back in November. And I waited to release this episode because the conversation is so important that I didn't want it to get lost in the flurry of election coverage. In her book, Taking Children, Dr. Briggs chronicles the country's history of traumatizing children and families with separation policies that were in place long before the Trump administration. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Laura Briggs. So anyway, so let's jump into this. Um, Laura Briggs, welcome. (laughs) Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited about your new book, by the way, um, you know, because the media has all but forgotten about the children who've been separated from their, their families, you know, the detention camps and the cages. You know, we were all outraged when it first started to happen. But, you know, really no one talks about this. And what what's happened is that things have just worsened for everyone else. Right. right. And so we just kind of took our focus off of it. But I mean, I think that's the problem, which I think is a kind of the underlying message of your book is that history keeps repeating itself. I think that's right. That's right. And like one of the things you you noted was that a lot of leftists and a lot of people on the left and progressives and Democrats kept saying, you know, oh, this is un-American. You know, Americans don't do this. But, you know, that's pretty much all we've done is separated children from their families. Well, that's really why I wrote the book is because I wanted people to see that this is a form of violence like policing, like imprisonment, that taking children, disrupting the insides of people's families, particularly people of color's families, is a form of sadism and cruelty that has been part of the American political system since before there was a country here. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I learned just in the opening of your book is that by not calling out this fallacy of American exceptionalism, that we kind of keep the harm going. Right. You know, this we support the harm by not saying, you know what, we're not exceptional, especially in this way. That's right. And I think that the problem that we also face, especially as we're coming up on an election, is if we think that Donald Trump is the first president who has separated the kids of refugees from their parents, if we think that this is the first time in U.S. history that people have lost children to the foster care system, to health and human services, to powerful forces of the state, then we will just elect another president who will do it again. For me, the moment of truth actually came when Obama was first elected in 2008. And I lived near the border. And so I knew very, uh, in Arizona, I knew very well what was happening at the border. And a friend of mine who was undocumented um, was picked up by the police and for a taillight or something, tinting on her windows. And they they investigated her status and they couldn't get they couldn't quite figure it out because immigration status is always confusing. Like she had a border crossing card. So they called ICE um and they took the two year old child who was in the back seat and they separated them. 
and they told her that that they would put this child in foster care unless she explained her immigration status to them and how long exactly she'd been in the country, had she overstayed a visa. And would she name the people who helped her, any people who employed her? And the thing that was so shocking to me was Obama had just become president. We had just lived through George W. Bush and torture in U.S. detention camps all over the world. And we had lived with immigration raids. And we I knew about the separation of immigrant and refugee children from their parents under George W. Bush. And I was so sure that everything was going to be better because Obama was president. And the first thing I learned was that this friend of mine had immediately been separated from her toddler daughter and threatened with losing her. And the reason I wrote the book is that I want people to understand very clearly that there's something rotten at the core of the U.S. political system that enables us over and over again to terrorize people of color in particular by taking their children. We're very good at focusing on abortion as a site where people get terrorized. You know, you're going to have to carry this pregnancy whether you want it or not. But losing children is at least as important a site of political activism on the right. Right. And I think that's really important because I think, you know, whenever I read your your work, I always learn something new. And we talked about Obama when we did our first interview. But here's the thing I think that people should understand. You know, it, it isn't necessarily a partisanship issue. We shouldn't necessarily think about it in that way. And yes, the Trump administration is uniquely evil and uniquely terrible. However, if you stop thinking about these problems because the person that you like is in office, <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't really get anywhere. So we should think of it as not an individual problem, but as a systemic problem, right? I mean, Obama specifically or Trump specifically aren't necessarily going in and, and taking children. But if any administration, and I don't care which side you're on, fails to address this issue that we've documented over history, right? Like that is the problem we should be focused on. Absolutely. And if anybody teaches us that, it's the most important feminist and racial justice movement of our time, which is the movement for Black lives. And they have been consistently good at seeing beyond the question of Democrats and Republicans and refusing to fall into the trap of endorsing Democrats because they're not racist at their core. It's not, you know, that we can say that the Trump administration is white nationalist and that that's its political ideology. It's not an accident. And that may not be central to, uh, let's just say hypothetically, a Joe Biden administration, but that does not mean that we will see an end to these this kind of child separation. And so Movement for Black Lives, as a result, was uniquely positioned to respond to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which has a Democratic mayor and a Democratic governor, and went through the Obama-era reform of the police because they understood that Democrats engage in racialized harm and state violence the same as Republican administrations do. And I think that we have to think about foster care in similar ways to how we think about the police. You know, my stomach gets all knotted up every time somebody says, well, we've got to stop sending the police and start sending a social worker. 
Of course, the thing that's central to taking children is all the times that social workers showed up at somebody's house and put their kids in the car and left um, and took them into foster care or placed them in adoptions. And I think that we need a similar kind of movement to end the foster care system or what we could call a child taking system as we've seen people calling for with respect to defunding the police. Wow. You know what? You see, we're 10 minutes in, like five minutes in, and I've already learned something new, right? <laughs> because I've been, I've been one of those people. I've been saying, you know, police, you know, don't send the police, send a social worker, right? And I wasn't really thinking specifically about the foster care system. I was thinking things like, you know, victims of sexual violence, for instance, right? Or other cases. I wasn't thinking about child, child separation. But you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, my stomach's in knots too, right? I mean, which harm is greater? Well, that's right. And state systems are violent systems or can become violent coercive systems, and one of the important things that we need to understand about the foster care system is where it came from. It assumed its sort of contemporary modern form in response to the Reagan era retrenchment, the war on drugs, and that moment of mass incarceration, right? The anxiety about so-called crack babies, even though we now know in retrospect that crack has very little, if any, effect on fetuses and pregnancies. But nevertheless, there was this huge outcry that was really about the beginning of the Reagan era retrenchment and shifting us to a system that violently came down on the heads of people of color, African Americans in particular. And before that, the first time we saw Black and Latinx kids entering the foster care system at all was in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, the segregation now, the White Citizens Council, segregation forever, and massive resistance. How did they come down on the heads of communities that were in rebellion? They threaten the people most dependent on the benevolence of the state, which frankly in the South wasn't much, right? Because there wasn't much benevolence of the state. But there was a limited number of people who were getting some support through welfare for their kids. And so what did white state government in the South do in response to desegregation orders? They threatened to take the kids of welfare mothers, and they threatened to throw um, so-called illegitimate children out of schools altogether. And that's where the foster care system came from. It came from the efforts to terrorize civil rights activists in the South, and also from American Indian movement activists in the West, where it, again, had this massive system that suddenly began to take children of anybody who relied on the government for any kind of support. Yeah, I want to talk about those histories um, in a minute, but I also want to talk about, you know, what's happening because this is where we began right at the border. And I think one of the most troubling things for me when this all started, I don't know if you remember, there was a hearing very early on about the separations, right? It was a big hearing and everybody thought big things were going to happen, but you know, it was just a hearing. <laughs> And, you know, one of the things that was revealed, I mean, it's good because, you know, we have a historical record of of all of the harms that have, that have happened under this administration. But 
one of the things that was revealed was that the thousands of children that they lost track of, right. it was like, you know, two, 3000 children that they lost track of. And what was most troubling to me, because I read through the transcript and I kept looking and looking for this. No one had an answer as to how it could or would be rectified. Like no one. Right. No, the Trump administration so clearly did not care about the fate of those kids, those families, those households. I've heard people say, and I think that they're incorrect, that the goal of that system was to make money for private agencies that could place the kids in foster care and adoptions. And I understand why they would say that. We have an adoption system that sometimes has functioned that way. But I think it was actually even more awful in the Trump administration, which is they literally did not care what happened to those children. They had no plan. They just wanted them to disappear into the Office of Refugee Resettlements system. And who cared what happened to their families? Right. Because there's a huge difference in not necessarily having a solution and just not caring, like not even caring to find a solution. (laughs) That's right. We've heard a lot of people talk about white nationalism with respect to the Trump administration, that their goal is to imagine the United States as a white country. And I think that we're getting a renewed glimpse of that in relationship to the Trump administration's defense of Confederate monuments. It's like, seriously, really, you want to defend the Confederate States of America? But I think what we see in the crisis around the border and losing children into the Office of Refugee Resettlement Shelters and some foster homes is precisely that view of the world. The Trump administration not only wants to halt immigration and upend the refugee system, the asylum system in the United States and globally, I don't think they care what happens to it. But where we could point to a kind of liberal multiculturalism embodied in, say, the Obama administration and say that their goal might have been to place children in foster homes and have them assimilate into, you know, to become proper U.S. Americans and not be raised by their own families. That was never the goal of the Trump administration. They literally just wanted these children to disappear. And of course, they wanted their parents to no longer apply for asylum, to withdraw their petitions for asylum. And that's what their goal was with this system, was to terrorize people into withdrawing their petitions for asylum. Right, right. And I just want to, you know, before we move on to the history of child separation here, I just want to go back to Obama and the Bush administration and specifically Obama, because, you know, people get really touchy and emotional about that. And even me, I mean, I like Obama. I'm a, I'm a black person. I was excited about his presidency. I'm still excited about his presidency. However, I think we need to move beyond, like if we want to improve things, we need to move beyond thinking of these issues as issues of individual malice, right? Absolutely. As opposed to like systemic malice. Well, I think that it was really clear at the outset that the Obama administration saw itself as, you know, an alternative to the George W. Bush system that did separate children from their families. And he brought people into um, Health and Human Services and, well, what Customs and Border Protection, and said, you know, fix the system, reform it. We need to stop separating children from their families. We need to keep better track of them. 
And then by 2014, they were under so much pressure from the political right who was saying, look, it's Obama's fault that we have so many people applying for asylum in the United States. Remember the wave of Central American children that started entering the United States two years before the election. So that's when they said, oh, God, you know, we can't we can't continue to build a humane system because then we're vulnerable to um, to this right wing assault on our administration. And that's when they started expedited removal proceedings. That's when they started putting children who are unaccompanied in cages. That's when they started putting um, children who were, you know, babes in arms who came with their mothers into family detention. So I think their initial impulse was to do something different and better. And I think that what happened ultimately is that they felt political pressure from the right to do anything in their power to stop the wave of refugee kids. Yeah. You know, and the the thing is, the last thing on this, because, you know, I, I hope these episodes are instructive to people. But what I'm getting from this is that the best thing to do, the best way to react to this is to to not ignore the issues of the system that are perpetuated by the party that you prefer. Right. But to push them to be better. Right. You can't ignore it. (laughs) That's not going to make it go away. You just have to push them to address it. Absolutely, Jennifer. If you look at the last chapter of the book, it is sort of lessons learned. Activism works. Electing presidents does not necessarily work. In other words, it might be the case. uh, Maybe we would agree that Democrats, by and large, are better than Republicans but on immigration issues. But we can see the activism on the right move to the Obama administration. And we can see, too, that activism on the left has moved the Trump administration. I do want to say a few things about where we are now, because it is the separation of children from their parents has stopped, but only because the Trump administration has essentially succeeded in getting rid of the international asylum system. They have pushed people across the border into Mexico, telling them that they can't wait for asylum hearings in the United States. So we're not seeing the widespread taking of children anymore because their parents are not in the U.S. either. And then since March, we've seen them using um, the COVID crisis as cover to essentially stop accepting asylum petitions from anybody. As well as international students, but that's a whole other other topic. That's today's disaster. But I want to go back to early, but not the earliest instance, but, you know, one of the earliest instances of America, you know, systematically taking children away from their their families, their caretakers, their parents in the most violent way, which was slavery. Mm -hmm. And we all know that we know all know about, you know, children were capital and they were used as labor and they were enslaved. You know, obviously, you know, we understand that. But what I what I don't think that people understand is that how the argument around child separation was used by abolitionists and anti-slavery activists to make this argument. Can you go through that a bit? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. On the one hand, the 19th century, the language of politics was sentimental. That I'm thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois complaining about the abolition movement as being sort of relentlessly sentimental in the sense that it was all about emotion. On the other hand, 
One of the things that we learned from the summer of 2018 and the crisis on the border is the sentimental language of children and parents actually is still very politically effective. So abolitionists obviously didn't have television, they didn't have the internet, but they had comparable things. They had pamphlets, broadsides, woodcuts, and other kinds of drawings And over and over again, what they did was they told the story of the separation of children from their mothers in particular, but their families in general. If you think about something like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, you may well have in your head the image of a mother reaching for her baby being ripped from her and sold down south. And the abolitionists left that as their mark in the 19th century, in our history of opposing slavery. They taught us to think in those terms about slavery. And it was, it was very effective. After two decades of telling such stories, and um, everybody from Harriet Jacobs to Frederick Douglass told stories about how children and parents were separated as well as white abolitionists like Harry Beecher Stowe and others, such that when Congress was debating the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the anti-slavery amendments were enacted at the end of the Civil War, ending slavery, one of the things they said was, at least we will not have to be confronted all the time with these images of mothers and babies being separated from each other. Okay. <laughs> not, well, not you want, right? You want? <laughs> well, you don't want to be, I mean, it's just like, I don't want to feel bad, you know? <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. That's what they wanted. Please don't make me look at this anymore. But that's what they like, Who cares about the families? Absolutely. I just don't want to feel bad. I just want to go on and have my drink on my, you know, antebellum porch. Absolutely. No, they, there's nothing dignified or... Um, or good about this view. But I think that harassing people in power to the point where they're like, please stop, is in fact how people have made change over and over and over again. But I, I, so one of the things that I don't understand, like I, I do know that it was effective, right? As evident of what you just said, right? But the thing that I don't understand, the stereotypes about black mothers back then to justify their being, you know, forced to be wet nurses and being forced to care for white children over their own children was that they were actually bad mothers. And I know that that carries on into, you know, the current times, but even back then, you know, women who were enslaved or mothers who were enslaved were painted as bad mothers to their own children. They were great caretakers takers to white children, but they were really bad for their own children. Have you ever heard that argument before? Absolutely, Jennifer. And I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly sort of what the fight was about. So slave owners said, not only are black women bad mothers, but they don't even have feelings about these babies. That's why we can sell them away and make money. Now, in reality, they knew that that wasn't true because they deliberately sort of held it over people. If you don't, um, if you aren't respectful to the slave owner, if you are difficult, if you cause trouble, then we will sell your child away. Obviously, that's not a threat unless you understand very clearly the kind of pain that that inflicts. But in the public debate, the big question was slave owners saying, look, black mothers don't care. And abolitionists saying, 
Of course they do. Their hearts are torn in two by the selling of their children away. And that's what they kept insisting on in these stories and these images is a way of seeing black mothers as mothers, as being just like their people in their white audience who felt like losing a child was devastating. And remember, too, that this is the 19th century when lots and lots of people are experiencing the death of their children, right? And so it has a a special kind of resonance in the 19th century to say these um, enslaved mothers are experiencing the same kind of agony that people whose children die are experiencing. And lots of people in their audience would understand that, would recognize that feeling. Right. And you mentioned something really important that it's a, it's kind of a nuanced point that I had not either thought of or read before. It was one that was brought up by Martha, Professor Martha S. Jones, and she wrote the book Birthright Citizenship. And so I think this was from that book maybe, or some other writing she did. But so we do know that enslaved mothers were encouraged to reproduce because children, again, were seen as capital, right? But is it true that they were specifically and partly encouraged to reproduce to coerce them for this emotional control? Because they knew that taking them or the threat of taking their children would be traumatic and it would be used as a means of control. I think that slave owners were interested in the financial benefit. But yes, Martha Jones says... Slave mothers were more afraid of losing their children than they were of the lash, than they were of being owned as human chattel, as property. The, the specific cruelty of, of losing one's child or of the threat of losing one's child actually was particularly terrifying. And I want to tell you where that quote came from, where this book came from. It's actually a project that Martha Jones and I were both on which was the attorney general of the state of Washington wanted to sue the Trump administration to halt the taking of children at the border in 2018. And so he put out a call to historians, who knows about the history of taking children as a political tactic to change people's behavior. And Martha Jones wrote the affidavit on enslavement. And I wrote the affidavit on the separation of children in Central America and Native kids. And so that's actually how the book started. But the book was also sort of came out of things I couldn't say in that brief, um, which did get filed in opposition to the Trump administration, which was, I said, well, you know, the history of mass incarceration and foster care are certainly part of the politically motivated taking of children to coerce people to do things. And the person in the attorney general's office that I was talking to said, yeah, but we can't talk about that because those are things that states do. And this is a lawsuit from the states on behalf of the states against the federal government. So we can only talk about things that the federal government does. So that's how we that's how I wound up writing about native children being taken into boarding schools and subsequently as part of the FBI's involvement in cracking down on the American Indian movement and um its participation in mass incarceration of native women and um communities. But I couldn't talk about foster care and um state level incarceration. 
So I had to write a book to get that out. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I I kind of don't know what to say about that. I was just about to add, so you're, this is Bob Ferguson, my state, right? Yes. Okay. Which, which I, I love Bob Ferguson, three of my favorite people, you know, you and Martha Jones and Bob Ferguson, but I am a bit shocked. <laughs> is this public? Is this a public um, document for people or no? You can find um, the affidavits. You can find our expert testimony. I just think that's really fascinating that this is how the book started and that Bob Ferguson specifically asked to to work on this. Um, you know, yeah. Yes. I don't, know, I don't know what else to say because like I was I was I was like prepared to praise that decision. But then when you said that we can't talk about the foster care, I'm like, ah, one of those things where you're kind of stuck in limbo. Like, yeah. How well, do I feel? I mean, so lawyers have to play the hand they're dealt, right? Um, yeah. Our job now is to talk about the federal government. So we talked about the federal government, but there is, of course, more to say. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But so shortly after slavery, you know, during the Reconstruction, that did not end child separation, right? Um, You know, once, you know, the slaves were freed and children were often still taken and kidnapped or arrested for, you know, what, idleness. Right. I mean, one of the, so the aftermath of slavery, there were a lot of ways that that could go and a lot of ways that it did go, right? Some um, formerly enslaved people were resettled on plantation land and promised that they could work it. And when um, Abraham Lincoln was killed, the white um, plantation owners were given their land back. So the Freedmen's Bureau and its activities were deeply contested, as contested as everything in the country um, at that point. Some government officials who worked in the Freedmen's Bureau were subsequently sent out west and became involved in the Indian Wars. On the other hand, the Freedmen's Bureau also really sought to provide health care and land and reunification for African-American families after slavery. So one of the things that happened was, of course, families were looking for each other. They had been separated by the slave system of selling people apart. And sometimes people had been compelled to marry multiple people. And so they tried to They tried to figure out how to put everybody back into nuclear families. Um, And one of the things that they did was respond to white slave owners saying, I cannot lose all these people all at once. That's how we got the sharecropping system, right? Um, I'll have no one to work my land. And they also took black children and youth and placed them in apprenticeships to white slave owners, um, former slave owners, and often left families without their children or and also without one of the people that they most needed to make money so that the family as a whole was economically viable. You can read the letters in the um, Friedman Spiro papers and they're just heartbreaking. And I remember one mother saying, we're free, but without our children. And this is what we wanted freedom for was our children. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's tough. Are those are the letters? Are they, I know there's some in your book. Where can we read the rest of them? 
They're um, they're in the Library of Congress, and well, a lot of them have been compiled in various collections. Since we can't travel to the National Archives at this moment. Yeah. You know, so here's the thing. I mean, it's, you know, this is one of those books and interviews where I have to, you know, struggle to keep it together because, you know, we both have kids. I have kids. And um, right. So that's that. <laughs> I was going to say something else, but, you know, it's just like, yeah. No, writing this book broke my heart. Um, and I was trying to get it out really quickly um, so that it would be relevant to the national debate. And by the last month that I was working on it, I was working on it around the clock, but it was also just so incredibly emotionally devastating. I got really sick. I got pneumonia and I couldn't get out of bed, which um, it seems to me was as much about being heart sick as being um, physically exhausted. Yeah. Because the ways that these kinds of cruelty work, of course, as you named at the beginning, um, is imagining that parents, mothers in particular, don't love their kids. And once you give up that belief, um, it's just an unrelenting legacy of, of heartbreaking cruelty that has partly been made invisible because the the mothers involved are impoverished and the kids are kids of color. And so that's one thing that makes it invisible. But the other thing that makes it invisible is because it's not happening to men particularly. It's particularly happening to single mothers and their kids. And I was raised by a single mom. Like I identify with these families, with these kids, with these mothers. And it's a terrible, terrible legacy that we need to do a great deal more to confront. So this is a bit of an aside, but I'm curious as to, is there any data that supports that, you know, this happens more often to single parent homes, right? Single mothers versus when there's two parents in the home, just in, in the entire system, including the, the welfare system. I would, I would imagine so. Absolutely. No, that it is. A fundamentally misogynist system that relies on the belief that single mothers are bad for children, right? Welfare, aid to families with dependent children, is a system that, with a few exceptions, only supports single mothers. And the belief that single mothers are lazy, aside from being demented, relies on misogyny, right? If you you have to believe that single moms are somehow fundamentally unfit, you know, there's that word straight out of eugenics. And what do we use it in relationship to? We almost never say unfit anymore after 1945 and the legacy of the Nazis in relationship to eugenics, except about single mothers. And that's what's all over the Southern segregationists and their how they used misogyny and um, racism to keep school segregation in place or to try to keep school segregation in place. One of the things that we forget about the civil rights movement is how much it was a story about mothers and kids. 
But because schools became the site, one of the primary sites of the desegregation fight, it meant that the focus was on children. And the NAACP in 1954 went, or the 19, late 40s and early 50s, as they were fighting for desegregation and an end to segregation in the public sphere, they were trying to avoid a rerun of the Plessy v. Ferguson case, right? Who is Homer Plessy? He's a adult man, and how the Supreme Court made that argument that segregation should continue is by thinking of, or by suggesting that black men were a threat to white women on trains. So the NAACP is trying to think through, how do we end segregation? And they start focusing on, you know, adorable five and six-year-old first graders um, and who are girls, right, in the Kansas case, in the Brown v. Board case. And so by finding in little, tiny, adorable black girls, sending them to kindergarten and first grade, um, it made children the focus of the fight. So how did segregationists combat these images of adorable, well-scrubbed children? They focused on impoverished children. They focused on mothers who were single mothers, um, whose husbands might have died or left or they got divorced. And they tried to reconfigure the fight. So it was poorly clad unclean um, children and their moms. And that's how they opposed school desegregation. In New Orleans, when they cut off welfare mothers from any aid um, and threw out all the illegitimate children and their siblings, their goal was to terrorize the Black community and Black children and their single moms. Well, so you're saying that one of the tools that they used to argue against desegregation of schools was specifically to to kind of pivot the the image away from, you know, this clean, you know, cute kids to these kind of, you know, single mothers who were poor and, you know, whatever images they had to say, like, hey, you know, we don't want these kids mingling versus, you know, these these, you know, nice looking kids. Is that what the, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And that was the misogynistic element? Absolutely. If you read. um Newspapers from that era focusing on saying um, scandalous things about the sexual morality of their mothers and, by implication, the children themselves, um, was how they tried to how they tried to end school desegregation. Well, the interesting thing about that is that, you know, not only is that was that not true necessarily, but even if it were. Does that not mean that their children don't deserve an education, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that I am, I am tremendously compelled about in that era, the er, you know, early 1960s, is the willingness of people to, even at the sort of respectable, the most respectable organizations like the National Urban League, to stand up for single mothers, to insist that they were going to help feed their babies if the state was going to cut them off and that they were going to protect them from losing their children, even when the state or social workers went to court and said these children are 
poorly housed, poorly fed, poorly clothed, and we're going to take these children away and put them in foster care. There was a huge campaign to feed the babies, was what the National Urban League called it. And they used their contacts nationally and even overseas. Airlifting aid for um, children in New Orleans in an effort to stop the use of foster care and cutting off welfare as a strategy to prevent the desegregation of New Orleans schools. Wow. So I want to I want to talk about the native children, right, and boarding schools, because I think one of the things that's often lost when we talk about that legacy and that history is that, you know, boarding schools, first of all, they sound nice, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I know. But the, and, right. and I think like that was that, we all want to go. We all want to send our children to these wealthy boarding schools, right? Right. But I think what's lost often, even though we know this intellectually, is that, you know, the violence, not only in within the schools themselves, you know, the sexual violence, you know, the abuse and, you know, children were beaten, but just the violence behind taking them. I mean, sometimes they were just like physically taken. Is that true? That's absolutely right. One of the things that I understood much more clearly as I was writing this book is how much boarding schools were a continuation of the Indian Wars. The boarding schools were proposed and set up, we all know the phrase, kill the Indian to save the man. They were reformist efforts, but there was nothing benevolent about them. They were run by the military. They were they involved corporal punishment, beating of children. Um, drilling children, cutting their hair. And there wasn't much education going on for a lot of them. One of the most striking things about the Miriam Report, which comes out in 1928, in response to Native activists demanding the return of their children and a reckoning with what's going on in boarding schools, is not just that the children are poorly fed, they're literally starving, that they are facing epidemics of disease in the um, boarding schools, that they are cold in the winter, that they don't have enough clothes, but even how few of them had learned to read, which gives you a sense of what the curriculum was, right? The curriculum was how to be a farmer, how to sew and do domestic work for girls, So what they were trying to do was transform these kids into domestic servants or farm help, not in any way to educate them. And so now I don't want to leave the impression that nothing of any good ever came of the boarding schools, because while taking kids could often be quite a violent process, and if they tried to run away, they could be rounded up and returned. We have reports from the 1930s about it's sort of cowboy-style folks going out and literally roping them and hog-tying them to get them to go to boarding schools that were often thousands of miles away. But on the other hand, the more that Native survival had to run through the boarding schools, the more Native adults became teachers in boarding schools and kids looked out for each other. So I want to sort of leave us with some ambivalence about what the legacy of the boarding schools was. Their intention was unmistakably violent. It was to eliminate families, to eliminate Native languages, to eliminate Native lifeways. But the actual implementation was everything. 
It was ambivalent. Right. I never knew that. I was going to ask you what could possibly be a positive outcome, but that that actually makes sense. Um, so I have a silly question for you, because I think one of the things that you you compared in the book was, you know, these photos, these kind of before and after photos. You compared those to, to the photos of lynchings, which is really interesting because it's essentially all about control and you know, kind of whitewashing, you know, a, a group of people. But um, do, do we know this is such a silly question, but I'm just going to ask anyway. <laughs> do we know how they got them to look white in the in the after pictures? Like what what did they do? Right. I don't know enough about um, the history of photography and the kinds of technology that they were using, because remember how early this is in the history of photography, 1880s, 1890s. And what you're talking about is something that I and other people have remarked on, which is not only are these pictures trophies that get passed all over the place, they get passed around in among white settlers, they also get passed around among Native folks, but they also look really different. So the before and after pictures, especially from the Carlisle Indian School, you see that they have cut their hair and eliminated native dress, and they all look like fine, upstanding Victorian people in tight clothing in the after pictures. But they also look lighter skinned. The lighting is different. The Something about the, the way these pictures are developed is different. It's it's dramatic. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it is really dramatic. I mean, I was just thinking about the psychology of, you know, someone looking at those photos and using them as a trophy. If they even thought about the fact that you literally, I mean, I guess there are ways you can change the color of your skin, right? But if they just thought about the fact that this is, you know, kind of a ruse, like you literally cannot turn someone into a white person. <laughs> you just can't do it. <laughs> you know, even if the photo, right? I just, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway. I have no answer for you about what they were thinking, except that, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century people's, there's a lot of discussion about heredity that has something to do with climate, that racial difference has something to do with climate, something to do with, you know, what you're eating and so forth. I don't, of course, nobody's actually seen somebody get lighter skinned, but... <laughs> The, it's certainly part of the effect of this idea of civilization. Native people in particular, different from African-descended people, white folks in the late 19th century, said about Native kids that they could breed white. Like, after many generations of intermarriage with white folks, they would be, their children, their offspring would be much lighter skinned. Unlike African Americans, who in whom the reappearance of African-looking traits would would just continually crop up generations later. I don't think genes work that way. No, um, it's part of you know you start getting into nineteenth and early twentieth century racial science, and it's sort of horrifying. Not yeah. that not that our contemporary racial science is that much better, but. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they also thought with wet nurses was that that somehow that when when enslaved mothers would breastfeed white babies, that they would somehow pick up the characteristics of the wet nurse. Right. So they were very mm -hmm. careful about who they chose. Um, so that's really interesting. Yes. Not, not scientifically sound, but yet. <laughs> um, <Not> yet. <laughs> Yeah, but I just want to just one last thing about the, you know, the native native boarding schools, because I think that you also assert in the book that, you know, the harms that they did incur still affects, you know, people who survived, including 
you know, the, the children that they raise. So if you survived a boarding school, you know, the, the abuse that you may have may have happened to you affected the way you raised your own family. So, right. There are two things I want to say about that. One is a lot of people mistakenly believe that the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act put an end to a long and ugly history of child separation that Native people stopped losing their kids, right? People use that the number that was important to the passage of the legislation in 1978, that one in three Native kids lived in out-of-home care. And the belief is that that stopped. We don't have evidence that that is correct. We know that as late as the late 80s and early 90s, we can see those numbers replicated and this continues to be a fight. This is the continued fight over, can you place Native kids with white families and what is the effect of that? Well, of course you can, but the question of whether it's genocidal or not continues to be struggled over in law. The other thing that I want to make sure I say is that the fights that we were talking about with respect to desegregation in the South and African-American kids also got replicated in Native communities, that they, um, that they lost kids to foster care and to adoption in the 60s and 70s in, re- in response to the American Indian movement and the Red Power movement, and that they also lost kids in response to the war on drugs and mass incarceration. It's important to say that boarding schools affected people who are still alive and walking around today, that there are many Native people who had the residential school experience who are today elderly. And in fact, there are still existing Native boarding schools today. Smaller and with different purpose, they're sort of an adjunct to the juvenile justice system or the mental health system, but they are the same buildings on the same land. And the other thing is that kids who were raised by survivors of residential schools also experience heightened anxiety, that they have less security in their everyday lives, higher rates of alcoholism, higher rates of drug abuse. And so the residential school experience is in no way something in our remote past. It is absolutely among us right now. I'm glad you brought up the war on drugs because I really wanted to talk about that. There's a stat in your book that I think that we need to repeat often, right? Um, when we're talking about this. And so, so of course, the war on drugs is caught up in this whole issue of child, you know, and family separation because of the foster care system. And, you know, lots of families incur harm due to that. But one stat that always gets lost, I think, is that black people and white people use drugs at the same rate. Yet, right? <laughs> black people are disproportionately. Like yes. You put that on a poster and walk around on a with poster it? on a T-shirt, which would be really weird. But, you know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, sure, I would walk around because it's that important. But, you know, black people are disproportionately punished for this. You know, the thing is, I was was having a conversation with someone. Yeah, please tell me. And? And white folks are more likely, white women are more likely to drink during pregnancy because that was something that Native women in particular got tagged with as um, abusing alcohol during pregnancy. 
Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that too. That's something else you should put on a t-shirt, which would also be very weird. Um, <laughs> but black people are disproportionately punished for this same behavior. And I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I was trying to explain that, you know, policy, drug policy specifically, they don't necessarily have to include the language of race to be racist. You know, right. So I, that's a comment. You can comment on it if you want. Well, and this isn't even remotely original with me, but thinking about the difference in the prosecution of crack cocaine and powdered cocaine, white folks use cocaine. Um, I, well, it varies a little over time, but white folks were the first to use cocaine because it was so expensive. So for a while, there was a disproportionate white usage. And then in the late 80s, it became roughly equivalent. But black folks were more likely to be using it in, the, in its inexpensive crack form. And so when you look at the law, you see that's passed with Joe Biden in the Senate and the leadership of um, some of this anti-crime legislation, not to rain on our Democrats again, you see crack being um if you're arrested with crack you are you go to jail for or prison for much much longer for much much smaller quantities and the disproportion is like 50 to 1 it's amazing and immense but the other thing we know from nixon the nixon administration is that criminalizing drugs or the hyper-criminalization of drugs was all about trying to push back against the effects of the Black Freedom Movement. Nixon wanted to criminalize, as he would say, the Blacks, right? And so drugs was absolutely about that. That doesn't mean the white people don't use drugs, but as you're saying, as we know from the law, the war on drugs is a war on African-Americans and also on Latinx people. And their children, because what happens is that you use that, you know, to to separate families, right? You know, you have the whole crack baby thing and, you know, you don't have cocaine babies. You you know, you have crack babies. Right. Right. And, you know, who's punished the most for um, for the early 90s hysteria around fetal alcohol syndrome is native women. And Native women are particularly vulnerable to being criminalized in this way because if you live on Native land, you are not punished within a state justice system. You're punished by the federal justice system. And so one of the stories I tell in the book is of a girl, really a kid, with her, um, she's 16 years old, her second baby, and she has a problem with alcoholism. And she nurses the baby when she's drunk. And the um, and a social worker figures this out. And so what happens? The FBI comes in and interviews her. And so she's trying to tell this terrible story, which is terrible. She's been sent to residential school where she's been raped. And this is in the 80s. And that is the origin of this child. And she is struggling desperately with her alcoholism. She's trying not to drink when the baby's hungry. She's trying to give the baby a bottle. And she's trying to explain this to an FBI agent. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And of course, what happens? She goes to Leavenworth for years and loses the baby. Yeah. 
This is yeah. not how we should be treating 16-year-olds. No. This is not how we should be treating anybody with a drug abuse problem and a raising their kid problem. But it's especially how we should not be treating 16-year-olds. Right. So you've got, you know, two two children essentially caught up in this, right? Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. There are a lot of lawyers in this room, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm a nurse. Madam Secretary, I want to be very clear about what the family separation policy is doing to children's mental and physical health. When you officially began family separation in spring 2018, were you aware of research showing it causes trauma? Uh, The information that I was aware of at the time was that the trauma is part of the journey. Okay, and were you aware that the trauma of family separation is connected to something called toxic stress? I have, I'm not familiar with that term, no. Okay. Were you aware that the effects of these traumas are cumulative? That they get worse the longer the trauma goes on? I, can I? Yes. I'll, sorry. I'd like to clarify. That was Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, in an exchange with Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois during a 2019 congressional hearing. And it was a memorable moment. And as Representative Underwood laid out the harms one by one, the harms incurred by children who were taken from their families, my hope was that those harms would really stick with people and that this moment wouldn't turn into another moment of political theater. Lauren Underwood was praised for her questioning, as she should have been, and the media called the exchange a grilling. But there was little talk about what she actually said, and the urgency around rectifying those harms began to recede from the headlines, especially after Kirsten Nielsen resigned from DHS later that year. Professor Briggs and I discussed Nielsen's legacy and a moment during her tenure where she blamed migrant parents for the trauma their children experienced due to child separation policies. Um, We don't talk about Kirsten Nielsen a lot anymore. Um, We should, though. Yes. Um, Because, you know, again, you know, one of these things that we don't really talk about, because remember one of the things that she said, and she thought she was making a really important or brilliant point, right, is that, you know, this child separation policy at the border was no different from when we take children away from families that commit a crime, right? Right. <laughs> and again, she thought she was making a really, you know, brilliant point, but she was actually making the point that you're trying to make throughout the book is that she's admitting that not only is the child separation policy at the border terrible, but what we've been doing for decades and centuries is terrible too. <laughs> That's right. And I think of that as a kind of indictment of those of us who've tried to raise the activist issues which is we're really bad at defending mothers who are criminalized, who, you know, maybe did, maybe didn't do something bad, um, something wrong, something illegal. But we've got to be willing to stand up for women who are criminalized, women who have drug and alcohol addiction. We have to be able to talk in complicated ways that acknowledge that there are times when people can't raise their kids. But nevertheless, don't fall into the sentimental language of the poor children, they're so victimized, and somebody should do something, and we have to protect the children. We've really got to talk about the complexities of families where stuff has gone terribly wrong, and what it's like to lose your parent after you've already suffered a lot of harm. And the idea that kids who are taken into foster care are infinitely better off once they get there. That's just not true. And when I say we've got a, we need an alternative to this discourse of let's not send the police, let's send a social worker. 
we also need an alternative to the belief that we can just swoop in and rescue children from their families. We need to be compassionate about adults, moms who get in trouble. We need to be compassionate about their kids. We need to be compassionate about how much it takes a community to raise any child. Yeah, you know, I I hope um, that you know the the future administrations, you know, hopefully the the next future administration will be the Biden administration. I hope that they, you know, you're called on to to you know, I don't know, work on this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but seriously, because it's something. It's one of those things that again we always put on the back burner, and you know, it just can't continue. I mean, this legacy. It's just it's it's. I, I don't even know what word we need for it. Like, you know, so how do we do like what policies do you think that we need? I guess you can't really answer that question that quickly. Well, but, you know, you know, how I do we move say, on from that? Yeah. Yeah. I will say a couple of things. Um, one is obviously we need to incarcerate fewer people. While women are less likely than men to be incarcerated, women who are incarcerated are disproportionately single moms, which means that when we incarcerate them, we send their kids to foster care. Another thing is we need a much smaller foster care system. We talk a lot in public policy circles about how the foster care system doesn't have enough money and caseworkers are overwhelmed and they've got so many kids on their caseloads. Some of that is because the foster care system itself is much too big. And what I mean by that is we are far, far more likely to take children for reasons of neglect so-called, than actual abuse. If our image is children who are being beaten, children who are being sexually abused, the most common ways that kids enter the foster care system is that they are housing insecure or a caseworker goes to their parents' house and find their mom's house usually and finds that they don't have food in the fridge or there are exposed wires. Now, those are problems that can readily be fixed with money without tearing apart a family or a household. Another really straightforward thing that we can do is make it a whole lot easier to get drug and alcohol addiction treatment. I don't know if this is still true, but a few months ago, the last time I was thinking about this, in order to get opioid treatment in where I live, Western Massachusetts, there was a six-month waiting period. Now think about that. If you sort of pull it together and find the courage in yourself to say, I've got to stop doing drugs, it's really hurting me, my body, my family, my household, my community, I'm going to go seek treatment. You pick up the phone, you call somebody and they say, okay, we can get you in in December. That means that your health continues to be in danger, your household continues to be in danger, and chances of you sort of summoning the wherewithal to go into drug treatment at the exact right moment when you can get into treatment have become exponentially more difficult. So those are a handful of really simple things that we can do. We can support people in housing. Housing support from federal and state governments has become almost non-existent. We've done away with aid to families with pendant children. The contemporary welfare system, TANF, is um, primarily a child-taking system, and it's very short-lived. We need to reinstate support for single moms with kids as a financial program. We need to support people when they are food insecure. We need to punish absentee and bad landlords. 
you know, there's these are old, simple fixes. That is, we need an enforcement system against wealthy white men that punishes impoverished moms and children a lot less. Those are some things. Yeah. Yeah. An entire paradigm shift. Yes. And a move away from a foster care system. An understanding that just like the police are primarily a system of violence against impoverished communities and are part of the ongoing enforcement of segregation in this country, we need to understand that foster care, above all, is a child-taking system and work to change that. Well, well, Laura Briggs, thank you so much for another brilliant conversation. I, I always look up to you in your work and everyone should read your books, seriously. And just thank you so again for, for helping me learn. Jennifer, thanks so much for having me and for doing this podcast. It's such important work. Thank you. Thank you.